Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Well, I am happy to be back. I've spent the last, uh, I had two weeks, three Sundays of holidays, which felt like a really long time because the previous three months before that, I was kind of doing the announcements and, and the organizing of the service. But so I was away on holidays and got to go down and see um, family. And I was able to go down and see my grandma who uh, was in hospice. But earlier this week, my grandma, Fanny, as, as, I, as we call her, um, went to be with Jesus. So tomorrow... We're going to be driving back down again, making that 14-hour, one-day drive to uh, be with family. So I won't be here for the kickoff, but I've recorded a video just sharing some of the things um, that I'm excited about. But my, I want to tell you a little bit about my grandma, Fanny. So the thing about Fanny is she um, just was so proud of her grandkids and great-grandkids. Um, she lived in um, kind of a Amis court kind of thing where they each had their own separate kind of apartments, but there was a communal um, gathering place. And she always wanted pictures. She put pictures on the doors to, so that everyone who would walk by would be able to see the newest pictures of all her grandkids and great-grandkids. Whenever we were going to visit her, she always wanted it over a mealtime. Because then that would mean that we would all be in the, you know, communal meal place. And then there'd be a point in the, in the um, dinner that she'd say, okay, I'm just going to take Naomi and Baron and just, you know, say hi to my friends. And then she would go to each table and just be so proud and be like, these are my great-grandchildren. And she would, she would number them because it's important. So just before she passed away, actually, she got to meet her 24th great-grandchild. And so that was a really um, a big deal. And something else I know about Fanny is that um, prayer. She prayed for her family that I remember her telling me every night before she'd go to bed, she would lie in bed and just think and pray through her whole family. And as she's passed, and as I've been studying Second Peter, it's got me thinking about legacy. And I wonder if Peter, as he was writing this letter, Second Peter, to the church, that I wonder if he viewed these people the same way Fanny did about her family, seeing it as the legacy of what Jesus and him did together. Because it says, Peter says right, right at the beginning, he, that for I know... For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life, so I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I'm gone. So we know this was at the end of Peter's life. And so Fanny's legacy is her family, her years of prayer and love and action following Jesus. And Peter's legacy is the, the church of Jesus, the, the body of Christ spread to the Gentiles, the lasting messages in the Bible. And today we're going to be thinking about what will your legacy be? 
And specifically in the context of 2 Peter, to put some kind of um, boundaries around it, the things he writes about in this last letter, are we creating a legacy of false teaching or a legacy of faithfulness? And so in, in chapter two, if anyone had a chance to read 2 Peter this week, um, I had mentioned it in our community group, he, in, he uses really aggressive and very harsh language that as you're reading it, it's a little bit like, oh, goodness, this is, this is harsh. And it's really easy to look for the other people that match those characteristics. You know, you read and you're like, oh, that totally reminds me of so-and-so. Or, oh, yeah, man, whoever fits this description, they are like bad, bad, bad. But what I'm proposing today is what if we read and look at the second chapter of Second Peter, asking the question, is there any aspects of false teacher in me? Not that, not that I'm saying that I am a false teacher, not that I'm saying that you guys are false teachers, but rather, what are the characteristics Peter uses to describe false teachers that maybe could be a little bit in me, or a lot? So the first thing that he says, false teachers, or a characteristic for us to be aware of, is rebellious says in verse 10 to 11, he, is he, God, is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who despise authority. These people are proud and arrogant, daring even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. But the angels, who are far greater in power and strength, do not dare to bring from the Lord a charge of blasphemy against those supernatural beings. I've noticed a growing... Um, idea or perspective or um, ideology, whatever way we want to say it, in culture. It's this idea that power and authority is always corrupt and oppressive. I don't know if you've noticed that, just kind of in the, the changes of language. If you have power, it's oppressive. If you don't have power, you're being oppressed. There's no, there's no other options. And to fight against oppression means to fight anyone in power and authority. Yeah, there are oppressive powers. There are people that use their authority in a power in a oppressive ways. But what I've begun to notice is this idea has kind of bled over into Jesus and God. That Jesus and the church, because there's power and authority, oppressive. 1 Peter 3.22 says, Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. But sometimes we don't. Right? It says all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. It's kind of interesting how it says, and all the humans do too. It doesn't say that, because we don't. And I think that's just something that, you know, as, as we live in the world and as we um, just live, that that ideology of that power is always corrupt and oppressive, we need to be really careful to see how that slips into our theology. Because yes, Jesus has ultimate power and ultimate authority, but 
he is not oppressive. And so this despising of authority or rebellion can look like the typical stuff that we can really easily see, right? That like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do my own thing. But it can also show up in kind of like the more sneakier ways. And as I was uh, um, preparing for this and, and just being like, Jesus, is there any of this stuff in me? It was like, Once again, the reminder of, okay, Amy, you don't often show up in the like, you can't tell me what to do. But if you're going to be rebellious, it shows up in that tricky little place of, oh man, I'll acknowledge and um, submit to authority as long as the person in authority is thinking the same way as me, has come to the same conclusions as me, has chosen the path that I agree with. Perfect. I'm there. But man, as soon as that authority maybe decides something different or doesn't go about it the way that I think is best or maybe doesn't have the same perspective of me. It's really easy to excuse myself. It's really easy to be like, mm, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Right off the bat. And I'm not saying like, hey, I have huge differences with someone and I'm not going to say anything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about that sneaky way where there's not even like, okay, having the conversation or going to the person being like, I don't understand this decision. Can we go through it? Or even recognizing it's a different perspective, not a wrong perspective. And this person is an authority above me. And so I can actually come alongside and submit to them. Rebellion can show up in that sneaky way, which is tied to the pride of, well, I know better, and since that person is picking something different, clearly they don't know what they're doing, so I'm not going to submit to their authority, which is rebellion. And again, please, please, please do not hear me say, no, blindly submit to authority, never question anything. I mean, Greg knows that I... I question him and I ask questions. That is not what I am saying. But I've noticed, again, right, the cultural, we love pendulum swings, right? That there was this whole thing of like, nope, people in authority, you blindly follow them, you don't question, you know, don't ask questions, they're in charge, you do whatever they say. To now we've swung to this other side of, nope, all authority is bad, corrupt, I am not submitting to anyone, I will decide my own way, no one will have power over me. And man, it's, it's that balance. We need, we need a balance of learning to come under authority, to submit to godly authority, and also not being captivated and controlled by it. The second characteristic is animalistic. Verse 12 in chapter 2. These false teachers are like unthinking animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Well, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Animals? Like, how are we going to be like animals? Like, ugh. But here's the thing. Animals do what their nature tells them without thinking. Hmm. What does this look like in us? we can get caught up in the idea that it feels natural, so it means it's right. The idea that natural means right. And what this can look like is is who I am and how I act, no matter how I show up, is natural, so it's good. 
Is that me? Oh, okay. Sorry, guys. I don't know what I'm doing to make the crackling sound. So we, what ends up happening is we act in ways contrary to the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, it tells us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. But sometimes what we do is we kind of give ourselves an out. Almost like it's like, unless you have an aggressive personality type, you need to be gentle. Unless you have really big, passionate emotions, you need to have self-control. There are no character or personality exceptions to the fruit of the Spirit. No matter how you were created, no matter all the, the beautiful, unique ways that Jesus has created us, all of us are meant to have and grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We get sucked into what my dad calls spontaneous justification, where we behave in a, in a certain way that is not how Jesus behaved or is asking us to behave. And then we justify it with, well, that's just who I am. That's how I was made. So I can actually be a jerk to this person because, you know, I'm, I'm blunt. I've fallen into this. When I've not shown up in, in gentleness and maybe used a little less tact than I could, I've gotten into that spontaneous justification where I say, well, you know, that's just who I am. I'm just, I'm just blunt and, you know, people need to deal with that. Uh, no, that's not showing up with gentleness or patience or kindness. And so this animalistic is a scary word for something that just means when we show up without thinking about our behavior and just excusing it away because, oh, that's, that's just who I am, when it is contrary to Jesus, we're engaging in that animalistic, doing things without thinking, going to the, well, it's just my natural instinct, so it can't be wrong. The third characteristic is deceitful. Uh, verse 13b, they delight in deception even as they eat with you in your fellowship meals. And so, I mean, in this, again, Peter is like super aggressive in this chapter and uses all sorts of... Um, Adjectives. There's the word. I was like, which one is it? Verb, adjective, noun? Ah, no, it's adjectives. That, right? That's the, Esther, that's the description one, right? Yeah? Okay. Adjectives. He uses all these adjectives and, and different ways that feel like really scary. Like we don't want to actually acknowledge ourselves in them because they're terrible. And so this deceitful, this deception, it could be the like straight up lying for, um, that you know you're doing it, and you're doing it to manipulate, and you're getting it. That, that's something. But I'm going to broaden it out a little bit. Deceitful deception can also mean keeping things hidden from those you are in community with. And I always feel like I'm like, make sure you don't hear me say, but it's also really important that you make sure you don't hear me say I'm not saying just like spill it out everywhere. I'm not saying in the lobby you are like anyone you come in contact with, you're like, let me tell you my deepest, darkest secrets. That's not being kind to yourself. That's not being kind to other people. That is not what I am talking about. I am also not talking about 
coming to church and, or meeting friends in your small group or someone that knows you really, really well and you being like, oh yeah, it's good. Everything's good. Everything's fine. When everything is not fine. What I'm talking about is not having secrets. What I'm talking about is not keeping things hidden. Because what can happen is we can have so many things hidden and so many things wrapped in deceit because of fear, right? We do these things because it's like, what if people knew? Will I still be loved? What if people knew they'll look and treat me differently? But we get it so wrapped up that these fellowship meals, fellowship can't actually happen because people can't connect with what's hidden. Is it just this? I'm going to take this off. I don't know. Let's see if that fixes the crackling, because the crackling is driving me insane as well. But then what Oh, no, it didn't. So then what happens is we walk away having wrapped ourselves so much in deceit and keeping stuff hidden, not letting people connect with us, we walk away and then we wonder why we don't feel connected. And then we're upset that we don't have fellowship in it and it feels like nobody cares about us. It's really hard for people to care and see you when everything's so wrapped up in deception. So the fourth characteristic is mercenary. Aren't these just like such great, right? Rebellious, animalistic, deceitful, mercenary. Verse 14. They are well-trained in greed. They have wandered off the right road and followed the footsteps of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. So Balaam, he's in the Old Testament, and what it was is he took money from a, a um, king to curse the Israelites as they were coming into the Promised Land. I mean, in the end, a donkey spoke to him, told him, mm, bad idea, and he actually ends up blessing and prophesying over them. But what Peter is referring to here is, is that Balaam was all about the prophet and for self. And when I say mercenary, that's what I mean. That we, take the, we can get into the uh, mindset of taking it. What's in it for us? What's in it for me? The cost-benefit, the self-promotion, solely focused on is this good for me? What will I get out of it? That's not the way of Jesus. Luke 9.23 says, If any of you wants to be my followers, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed. And so this mercenary, it can be like really blatant of the aggressive, like, nope, like I'm going to take what's mine. I'm going, it's all about me. But, but it can also come in the sneaky ways of, is this good for me? Solely focused on that. Because once again, I'm not saying, all these things are so tricky, right? Because there's like a narrow road. I'm not saying that you just never think about your own health or never think about care, never think about how it's impacting you. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying 
if that is your number one priority of is this good for me, what do I get out of it, where will I be at the end of this, and will I be where I want to be, that's mercenary thinking, and that's not the way of Jesus. And so these characteristics, rebellion, animalistic, deceitful, mercenary, are we building a legacy with a foundation of these things? And I ask this question not in like a fear-mongering, shameful, we're all sinners and terrible people. We are all sinners. But not in that like really gross, yucky, let's feel really bad about ourselves. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what I'm saying we need to do. What I am saying is we need to be soberly reflecting. And actually, I've been doing this as I've been, you know, preparing this sermon and actually also listening to a podcast that just kind of talked about, um, it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and just kind of, it talks about just uh, the, the quick explosion of a church plant and then kind of the disintegration really fast. But it also talks about, um, a lot about leadership and the people around and how things came about and how leadership was structured. And I've been doing some sober reflecting man, do I show up in any of these ways described in the podcast as well as in 2 Peter? And then just even for life, are any of these found in me, Jesus? Because I don't want them. I don't want a legacy of false teaching. I don't want a legacy of these characteristics, of of my legacy built on these, because this isn't the foundation I want. What kind of foundation do we want? Well, Peter actually shows us what the way, way better alternative is to a legacy of false teachers. So Peter talks about false teachers in chapter 2, but then we also have chapter 1 and chapter 3. And so when we look at all of these chapters together, it actually paints a picture of Peter calling for a legacy of faithfulness. What's so interesting to me is this book, Peter's last message that we know of, to his legacy, to the churches, to the people that he has introduced Jesus to. It isn't about doctrine or orthodoxy, which means correct beliefs. This book is actually about ethics or orthopraxy, which I just really, that means right living. I just really like the sound, orthopraxy. It just sounds really good, but that just means right living. So this indicates something to us. I think how we live matters. Peter's last message to this church, to that church was, hey, how you live, your behavior, your ethics are a big deal. But Peter sets the foundation of his letter rooted in Jesus, his power, and divine promises. Right off the bat, in chapter 1, 3 to 4, it says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who has called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. 
These are the promises that enable you to share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desire. Isn't this a relief? Living a godly life is essential. It's actually not all about beliefs, but it's beliefs paired with behavior. But it's not all on our own. It's not that we try harder, you know, I can't think of the phrase I'm thinking, but right, it's, it's not, we're not responsible for doing this. It says God has given us everything we need. It's found in him. We don't have to do the behavior to then somehow get something from God. He's given it to us already. And then Peter books, bookends the, the book with, with the second coming of Jesus. And so I take from this that Christian ethics, how we behave, matters and is possible in light of what God has given us. And it's important in light of his return. And so in chapter one, Peter exhorts his readers to uphold some ethics. But actually, majority of these were common ethics of the day. They, there was nothing special about, there was nothing unique about them. The moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, patient endurance, godliness, brotherly affection. These were all things that were found in other um, kind of ethical writings of the time. But Peter adds a Christian distinctive, a Jesus distinctive. It starts with faith in God's promises and ends with love for everyone. Not just brotherly affection, which kind of, you know, that's easier. Love for everyone. And these two things, these two things are a Christian ethical distinctive, faith and love. This sets our behavior and our foundation for our legacy apart. Faith, hope, and love, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13. And the greatest of these is love. And so as Peter kind of gives us this list of ethics, he also gives three overarching principles for our behavior. The first one is be pure. I already read this. I'm going to read it, read it again. One, four. And because of his glorious glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by humans desi human desire. I see this as be aware of broader cultural issues and perspectives and the places where cultural thinking doesn't line up with Jesus' thoughts. Because here's the thing. Sometimes in, in um, the broader culture, there's, Jesus is there. So they have things that are, that are from Jesus as well. They have ideas and truth that are Jesus. They might not know it's Jesus, but it is. And then sometimes the greater culture has stuff that is, does not line up with Jesus at all. But when we're in the bigger culture, it's, it's easy to kind of get diluted. 
So the only way I could think of it is, is sometimes our thinking and behavior get so diluted with the bigger culture that we lose the flavor of Jesus. Right? We're the salt of the earth and the light of the earth. We don't want to lose our saltiness. We don't want to dim our light. We need to continue to learn what it means to show up in the broader culture, to show up in the places, not isolate and and separate ourselves, but show up carrying Jesus and sharing his love. The second one is be aware. In chapter two, this is the underlying message. And again, this is questions of who are you listening to? What are their foundations of what they're saying? What are their actions and how do they line up with Jesus? And then also in the awareness, that self-awareness. What are your foundations? What are my foundations? What are my actions? And how do they line up with Jesus? Or another question. Do what I say and how I act, do they line up? Because if there's discrepancy there, we need to take a look at what we actually believe. Be aware, what legacy are we building? And what are we building it on? The third one is be diligent. So be pure, be aware, be diligent. And Peter um, connects this to, be diligent, Jesus is coming again. And this isn't in an un. And it will be unexpected. And so we don't have to be, you know, diligent in that panicky, obsessed, he's coming back any minute, ah, sort of way. But holding the fact that he is coming back and it will be unexpected, that in that we will be continually diligent to what Jesus has called us to do. Uh, chapter three, fourteen. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Every effort. So apathy, just kind of going through the motions, slogging through the day. That's not what Peter is telling us to do here. And again, when we hear stuff like that, or maybe it's just me, but I'm pretty sure it's not just me. When it says make every effort, I can kind of feel that thing of like, oh, I got to try harder. Okay, got to buckle down, you know, do it all on my own strength. But no, this isn't about trying harder, actually. Again, it's about trying different. Looking to Jesus, looking to God. He's already given us everything we need to live a godly life. A legacy of faithfulness is first found in God because he is a faithful God. And from that, legacy, from that faithfulness of God, we can build a legacy built on faithfulness. And so in conclusion, what are we building? And what are we using as a foundation to build our legacy? Because here's the thing, we will all have a legacy. Whether we're aware of it or not, we will all have a legacy once we're gone. 
we will have made impacts on people's lives. The broader society, people around us, our family, friends, there will be an impact. There will be a legacy, whether you've thought about it or not. And so what is your legacy going to be built on? Are we going to use those false, utilize those false teacher characteristics to build? Are we going to utilize rebellion and animalistic desire, deception and a mercenary focus? Or are we using the power and promises of Jesus and the hope of his return as a foundation, committed to being pure, aware, and diligent? What will be your legacy? So, again, I'm going to read 2 Peter 1, 3-4. By his divine power, God has given you everything you need for living a godly life. You have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who has called you to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given you, he has given you great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desire. So today, church, on-site, online, I bless you. I bless you with the deepening knowledge of the divine promises that God has given you. May you be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life rooted in Jesus and what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection, that you would live a life full of purpose. You would live a life full of his glory and excellence as you build a legacy of faithfulness, seeing the faithfulness of God in your life. And the faithfulness that Jesus will come again and make all things new. I bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you would like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ, and then make him known.